Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, we discuss surf photography, Australia's top literary outpost, and we celebrate modernism in print. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'll start the show talking about one of my obsessions, surfing. And no, listener, unfortunately, I'm terrible at it, but at the same time, fascinated by it. The beauty of the waves, the surf look, is just so beautiful and liberating in a way. But it's certainly not only me that appreciates this kind of beauty. And that's why we have a long list of incredible surf photographers out there. Gaspar Conrad, who operates under the moniker Surf Porn, just released a book showcasing surf photography's finest selection. I had the pleasure to talk with him about his book Surf Porn from Gestalten. I live in and grew up in Paris, uh, France, but my grandmother and part of my family live in Biarritz, France, also in the southwest in front of the Atlantic Ocean with the waves and everything. I used to go there for all my holidays. Uh, we had uh, the chance to have a an, house really in front of the waves on a sand dune. So in fact, I, I, I grew up there, I, I mean, in my holidays. So each time I, I went out, it was for body surfing or surfing or being in the ocean. My passion with surfing began like that. The other thing is that for the imagery, I used to have on my computer back in the days, uh, like, you know, folders, different folders for different topics. I had like art and design, skate, surf, and I used to collect the beautiful uh, photos that I found on the internet uh, at this time. So I found the photos on the blogs, on the Tumblr blogs or something like this. I used as well to collect all the magazines, the surfer journals, which is one of the greatest uh, magazines in surfing, uh, but also all the old French magazines. And so I collect this. And once Instagram appears to be something, you know, by back in something like 2009 or 2010, I was back from the Basque country to, to Paris at the end of the summer. And I was like, no, I'm so frustrated because the surfing now is behind me and I have to go back to school or something like this, or maybe go back to work because I was something like 25, 26. And I used to create this account, you know, called surf porn because the food porn was something there was, there was this expression. and. Once I created Surfpon, I put something like 20 shots at one time on the account with only the best of the best that I could find on, um, I could find on my computer, sorry. And slowly it began to be something. And at the time I had only like um, some dozens of followers and after thousands of followers and they understood that I posted like every week something like two or three or four photos, but all the time it was something very artsy or original, not, you know, with the classic imagery that we can find in surfing that are very close-up action sports view, you know. With surfboard it was something different because surfing is something different and I wanted to express my point of view like that. And what's your relationship with the photographers? Are they happy, you know, to be featured in such an account, which, I mean, your account, I mean, as you said, these days is super popular and that's why... Perhaps it became a book now, which we'll talk later. The photographers are soft porn, in fact. They are the account. Me, I am nothing but 
someone that is frustrated in Paris, you know, and just wanted to show to the world the best surf shots that I can find. So the photographers are everything to me. And, you know, once the account began to have like hundreds of thousands of followers, I used to speak for the first time with some of the people I admire the most. And I was very happy to speak with them. And since the beginning, I always tagged the photographers, you know, on the photos, in the caption. And it was very important for me to to put them on the front row, you know, to be able to showcase their work. It was something very important for me. And who had the idea for the book? Did Gestalten perhaps approach you or you always wanted to actually have a physical product in the end to celebrate it? Yeah, it was my dream. My past 10 years, I've been nothing but surfing because I used to start a very big business in France, nothing in common with surfing. But I built a company called WeFix with my two partners and we have been the leader in France for the smartphone stripper. So if you broke your glass or have a problem with batteries, we have 150 shops in France. And we sold this business to a giant retailer called Fnac Darty. Once we sold the business, I told myself, okay, once uh, we will finish our earnout about three years, I will make a project uh, with Surfborn. And the first project was to make a book. So once I left my job at Wifix, after selling it, I began to work on a book. And, you know, I knew nothing about editing, about the publishing companies, the editors, the distribution channels and everything. So I contacted a lot of people. And Gestalten loved the project and it was my main target because I love what they do on the books. I, I used to have a lot of uh, books from them. And so it started like this. And after that, uh, step by step, we slowly build this amazing book. And how did you choose the, the cover picture as well? It's so magical. I mean, I need a print of that. <laughs> you know what? Uh, the, the little story about the cover is that at the beginning, I, you know, the name surf porn is so good. I wanted to have uh, written on the cover the words surf and porn in a huge typo like this. And Gestalten told me, you know what? I think we, we should put a photo uh, on the cover because it's a photography book. And we will put this one. So they choose this one with me, of course. And they told me, you know what? If we put this one, I think it will be way better for selling, you know, the, the book. So it was not my first shot, but at the end, I think it's a legendary shot, exceptional shot. And I think it will work well. And if you put it on the shelf with other books, you know, this one is yellow. So it will be like shining in the eyes of everyone who is uh, passing around, you know. I'm really proud of it. And it's a shot from Mike Kutz, which is from Hawaii. And none of the less is that the, the shot is exceptional, but the photographer is also exceptional. He's uh, an ex-pro surfer. He lost his leg from a shark attack a few years back. Wow. And now he's passionate about sharks. So if you hear this, go check his Instagram account. His name is Mike Kutz and he's a legend. And this shot is a legendary shot. I'll definitely be checking that. And, and, and tell us, what, what for you makes a good surf picture? Because you did mention that perhaps in the surf press, there's a lot of kind of sometimes close-ups and, you know, it's all about the sport and kind of, but yours, there's something quite beautiful, quite contemplative in a way almost, right? But I guess there's space for all exactly. types of imagery. Exactly. But at the time when I created Surfone, my main goal was to put photos of lineups. A lineup in surfing is when you saw all the spots, you know, you can see the shore, the trees, the waves. And in fact, that kind of shots with the good light, the good colors, the great waves and like a picture perfect shot. All the surfers they are watching this and they are like, oh my God, I want to be there right now. I want to teleport myself and to be there right now. I think a great shot, it's when, you know, they really want to be in that picture, you know. 
to teleport themselves to be in that picture. And after this, of course, it's a great mix of the great color, the, you know, the landscapes. Like I love to put like dramatic landscapes and with the little surfer in front of it, you know, surfing, we are nothing in, in the ocean. It's like a huge wave coming in the huge landscape, it's very large, you know, I really like when the photographers are retranscripting this. It's a contemplative way to watch this. Do you have any magical place in the world that you think photographs especially well, or that depends, but perhaps, I don't know, a place you've been, perhaps? There is this place I have been. It's a remote island in Indonesia. It's called Sumba. It's a very wild island. And in Indonesia, there is something about the light in the early morning. And there is a lot of photo about this in the book. And there is this light that is like a bit orange, blue, you know, in the morning. And in the morning, for surfers, there is something very important about the wind because there is no wind in the morning in Indonesia, I mean, when it's perfect. And so the ocean is like, it, it's very glassy, you know, it's very, it's like oily. And so you, you see the waves coming, it's perfect. You have the, the palm trees and uh, the light in the island. It's beautiful like this. And this is something uh, I chase now, like every year, or often as I can do. I think I want to go to Samba now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Gaspar, one question, so I know you're French. I want to know more about the relationship between the French and surfing, because correct me if I'm wrong, because I know France had quite a lot of kind of good surf music, I guess, in the 70s and 80s. So th there is a connection. I think it is a nation that appreciates its surfing, no? Exactly. You are totally right. In fact, in France, so you, you can surf everywhere, from the north to even in the Mediterranean coast. The best and the most known, renowned uh, spots are in the southwest, but you have very, very uh, good spots in Brittany as well. So you can surf everywhere, and there are a lot of surfers in France, like everywhere in the world, but in France there is a huge community. And it's even like kind of a problem, because now if you go to the Basque Country, for example, uh, in, in August, in summer, there are so many people in the water, so you have to go a little bit further, you know, in the land, for example, where you can still find a lot of empty beaches, sandbanks, where you can surf alone. But no, yeah, I think it's, it's, there is a great community. I think we, we are about something like one, one million surfers in France, so there are a lot of, uh, of surfers, and it's growing every month, every year, of course. And I have a question, because I know the book is out, it's beautiful. I also was looking at your website. So there are a few prints that people can actually buy via the Surfborn website, right? Exactly. So the second project is this website, in fact. So it was released a little bit before the book because I, I finished it earlier, but it's like a gallery. So I signed photographers that I love. So today I have seven photographers and we'll have three more in the next uh, weeks. And so... I select with them the, the best uh, soft shots and we split the margins, so, you know, like a gallery. And my goal was to finally have a website, you know, where we can, you can find the best uh, soft shot that is suitable, you know, with the living room because not all soft shots are beautiful. For example, this one, if you can see it, but it's a longboard on a parking in South California. And it, it, there is something cool about this shot that I love. So it's that kind of shot, you know, black and white. Uh, something a, a little bit artsy about surfing and it's working pretty well and so you can order it and you have it delivered at your door like printed and framed with a little mount on it it's beautiful and it's working pretty well I, i'm very happy i'll definitely be checking out you know especially as i said especially that cover image of your book is fascinating i think that should become a print at some point <laughs> yeah 
I'm still negotiating with the photographer for this one, but uh, I think I will have it. It's, it's a great one. And Gaspard, you mentioned earlier in the interview about the Surfer's Journal. Do you still read up some surfing magazines? Even on the show I host, The Stack, we had, I think it's a German title called Waves and Woods. I mean, there's some beautiful titles out there. Do you have any others you like to read time to time? Yeah, of course. So I don't really buy uh, the classic, Uh, action sports surfing magazine but I still buy the best magazine which is Surfer Journal and I love it because you know they are not talking about the last news in surfing they are treating like they are explaining and, and interviewing and, and relating like topics that are li a little bit timeless they are meeting great surfer painters but everything in common with surfing it's beautiful it's really well written and you read it like a book before sleeping I love it Thank you very much, Gaspar. And Surf Porn is out now, published by Gestalten. Last week here on The Stack, we celebrated the new stand and also a few of our winners on Monaco's inaugural Retail Awards. This week, I had the pleasure to speak with another one of our winners for the prize of Australia's Top Literary Post. We gave that award to Readings in Melbourne. I spoke with Joe Rubo, Readings Managing Director. Readings is a Melbourne independent bookseller. We were established in 1969 in Carlton. That is our sort of flagship store is in Carlton, but we now have eight stores around Melbourne. I am the Managing Director as of probably three weeks ago, but I've been at the company for 20 years. And with a company with so much history, I mean, how do you feel kind of now being in charge in a way? Do you want to implement changes or perhaps to preserve the success of readings in a way? Well, it's a great honor. I have so many great colleagues, so it's, it's an honor, but it's also quite humbling to be sort of leading the company. I think you have to change, but I also think it's important to sort of remember where you came from and sort of maintain some of those roots. Because I think sometimes companies can grow too quickly or have ambitions that are disconnected from their foundation, I suppose. And it's quite interesting. You mentioned you have eight addresses and, you know, that's clearly a success story. But you guys decided to remain local in Melbourne. So I think the brand's very closely associated with Melbourne. Or do you ever think, shall we open a store in Sydney? Or, or do you think the brand actually belongs to Melbourne in that sense? I think we're quite happy to stay mm. in Melbourne. It can sometimes be hard enough to go across the city, let alone to get on a plane to visit, <laughs> to visit one of the shops. I think there's lots of good bookstores in those cities, Sydney, Canberra, Brisbane, Perth. I think they're well served by their local independence. Tell us about, uh, you know, I was reading actually the article Monaco saying how events are quite an important part uh, of readings. And I was reading here that Perhaps in a year, there's over like 400 talks. I mean, how important that is? Do you think people like the customer wants to be more involved? And I have a feeling that the customer for readings, they're very kind of loyal. They love the shop. They might go there every week or something like that. We do have a lot of loyal customers. Events are extremely important for our stores. And it's really about being part of the community and hosting events, book launches, literary readings, it gives the local community access to that sort of author and helps them discover writers that they might not 
have discovered otherwise. It's actually my colleague, Christine Gordon. She puts in so much work into that events program, like 450 events in the year. She does a really terrific job. That's amazing. And Joe, I want to know as well, in terms of bestseller, you don't need to tell me like the super current bestseller list, but is there anything particular that the customer for readings enjoy reading? What have you noticed perhaps in recent weeks or recent months? One of the great things about readings and readings Carlton in particular is we have, I think our customer base reads very widely and they're very discerning and they have very good taste. We sell bestsellers, but we also have a very strong backlist. So lots of really interesting literary titles, cultural studies, philosophy. We have a great visual arts section, cookbooks, some magazines, literary journals. Yeah, we do have a really good extensive range and they're well shopped by our customers, yeah. Some recent releases, Wifedom by um, Anna Funda, which sort of explores um, the story about George Orwell's wife, Eileen Blair, who sort of was George's editor and first reader, I suppose you'd say, and she's sort of been lost in history. So Anna Funda sort of explores that story. And you guys sell music as well, Jeff. I love it. I mean, because I'm the kind of guy, I still buy, you know, vinyls, even CDs still. Is that still an important part of the business or things are changing? How do you perceive that? Uh, well, it used to be a hugely important part of the business. We were called sort of readings, books, music and film. We used to sell a lot of DVDs and we've recently stopped selling DVDs. But we do sell music mainly at our Carlton store. We have a pretty good range of CDs and vinyl. Vinyl has come back and it's mm. probably more than 50% of our sales. But obviously it's a very difficult market. We don't get the supply that we used to. A lot of new releases aren't coming out on CD anymore or they come out on Spotify, you know, two months before the physical release, which makes it somewhat difficult so we've we've had to scale back our offering somewhat i think we still do pretty well but yeah we don't have the same range that we used to but our music buyer dave clark he does we do have some really good i think we're the last store that sells classical music in the city it has changed massively over the years yeah and joe again perhaps because of my upcoming trip to australia i'm very curious if you can tell me what's your kind of Australian media diet? I mean, which newspapers do you like to read or magazines perhaps that you even stock or or something interesting culturally in Australia that you, you would like to recommend to us? Yeah, well, we were talking about Swill magazine before, mm. which I love, edited by Miffy Rigby. Did I get that right? And there's the monthly magazine by Schwartz Media. They also make a, a paper called the Saturday Paper which I love to read every week, which is kind of an editorial and a rundown of sort of the week's news with some book reviews in there, some music reviews, theatre. Yeah, I've heard great things about the Saturday paper, actually. Yeah, yeah, the Saturday paper is fantastic. Thank you very much, Joe, and I can't wait to visit the bookstore in person.
first published in 2011, the Modernist magazine has been celebrating 20th century architecture and design for over a decade. With its pages packed full of odes to concrete, the quarterly magazine turns how we think about public infrastructure on its head, elevating the humble bin to a star of the street. The Modernist team have just released their 48th issue called Music, which takes readers from working men's clubs in the northeast of England to a musical trip on the Moscow metro system. Monaco's Isabella Jewell spoke to founder of the Modernist Society, Jack Hale, and the magazine's editor, Eddie Reed, at the Modernist Book Fair in Marlebon last month. My name's Eddie Reed. I'm from The Modernist. We produce books and a magazine called The Modernist, and we have a little shop and gallery in Manchester. I'm Jack Hale, and I'm a founder and director of The Modernist Society. It started off mainly as like a Facebook group, really. And then we organised an event under the, the apprehension that nobody was going to turn up, but people did turn up to it. And so we realised that we weren't alone and then we put on another event and some people turned up for that. And then one thing led to another. And then a couple of years into the society, it was going well. And Jack came to me one day and want to start a magazine. And I was like, why? Because this was 10, 11 years ago. Everybody was saying print was dead. And we've always quite liked the ideas of, of doing things against the flow of things, you know, which is just a bit, a bit madcap. We'd gathered together a, a, a group of interested and interesting people that, that we thought they could write something or they could take photographs. So we knew that there was like a, a source of materials that we could access. So the thought of pulling together a magazine, which wasn't really much more than a pamphlet at the time, was relatively easy because we just had people that we knew we could, we could call on. And we'd grown a small but solid group of followers coming to our events and things so we thought well we could give it a go we'd been working with some student designers so we thought well they could design it they could be in it there's enough people who might want it it was, it was one of many projects the magazine has has now been going for 13 years so it's become a mainstay it's become it's become 47 issues it's become a mainstay of the project but it really is just one aspect of the different things that we, we've been doing all across those years and if you take me back to when you first started the magazine, can you tell me a little bit about the format of it and, and how it presented and then how it's kind of evolved and changed over the years to now? Without any money, we had to look at how to make it as achievable as possible. And that we had a designer who suggested that we just use one colour because one colour ink would be cheaper. So, so it was a, a balance between the amount of pages we have, the amount of colours we might use, and the amount of copies would, would be printed. So we started off, as I say, with a very limited colour palette, with literally just one colour each. Each issue it would change. By the time you've used red, blue, green and black, there's not much left. You can't really use yellow because you wouldn't be able to read the text. So, but by that time we'd grown a few more followers and subscribers so we thought you know after a short while we could afford two colors so it's grown very very gradually as the audience have grown we've we've been able to add little extra bits so it became perfect bound and then it became full color the designers have always worked voluntarily or pretty near voluntarily for us so again every two or three years normally those designers will want to move on to their real work so there's often a quite a big shift in the design of it each two or three years it will go evolve in a, in a new direction we're very very open to changing the format ironically the format has stayed exactly the same in terms of the content it's 12 articles of a thousand words 
more and more people are happy to give their photographs. So when we went full colour, for example, when we were able to do more photography, that influenced the format as well because we wanted to give the photography more room to breathe. So it's kind of a, a symbiotic thing. Is the, the, the better the content is, the, the better the quality of the magazine and then that, that influences the format of it. And also we want to keep it fresh and change the format, which really annoys some people, really annoys it. It's just like when people are getting used to the format and really like it, we go and change it. And people collect our magazine and they like it on the shelves. And as I say, it annoys some people that they can't have a nice run. It just goes up and down like a graph. But we kind of like that, just to be slightly annoying. (laughs) But it, it keeps it fresh and it keeps it interesting. And obviously this is a project that came about in Manchester. In terms of the content, do you have quite a regional focus or has that also branched out over the years? Well, when we very first started, we were a bit chippy northerners and it's just like, yeah, we want to keep this northern. We won't do anything about London because London can look after itself and, and what have you. But very, very soon, which was very thrilling, we realised that you know, it wasn't just people in Manchester who were buying the magazine. It, it became a national magazine and then an international magazine we didn't consciously say, right, we'll be less provincial. But because the magazine is written by its readers, people from all the countries were offering articles, which was great for us. So it is very much now an international magazine. And because we kind of like the idea that modernism is an international language, you know, it's universal. It's a common thread between everybody. So everybody speaks the language of modernism around the world. So readers are, are intrigued and interested by little pockets of modernism all over the world it, it was always intended not to be a Manchester magazine because at the time we were the Manchester Modernist Society so that all of our activities were Manchester based and now we've got other groups around different cities so we're not a Manchester focused totally Manchester focused organisation anymore part of the reason for doing the magazine was to get out of that localness there were Manchester based articles in there because a lot of people we knew were from the northwest, but it was never meant to be a Manchester magazine so it was always broader than that but as I just said we tended for peculiar reasons just to avoid London a little bit because there's just so much about London architecture we didn't think it needed it if there was an article about somewhere in Argentina or Russia then that would go in too so it was a consciously different project from the Manchester Society it was it was always intended to be wider than that could you give me a few examples of the sorts of articles that you have had in the past ones that perhaps stick out in your memory as particularly interesting or quirky or very Manchester modernist or the modernist in style we've got a running joke about bins we had an issue when uh, it was about bins about waste bins in the street and again it was like what should we put on the cover we'll put a picture of a bin on the cover because that's a very the modernist thing to do and it was one of our most successful issues just it, it was great we don't tend to write about the big superstars the sydney opera houses of the world the south bank centers we much prefer to talk about bins each magazine has a has a theme we work through the alphabet so every quarter we change the theme and every year we change the first letter of the theme so it goes from we're currently moving shifting from m to n so there were four m's ending with music and the first N is neglected. So there's always a theme to each issue, which we put out to our contributors and just ask them to suggest something. We do like that kind of quirky or the shining light on the unloved elements of architecture, bins, underpasses, toilets, as well as libraries and shopping centres. The themes will throw up sometimes an unexpected article that we we would never have dreamt of. We just put music to bed as well. And again, as, as Jack said, we come up with some ideas ourselves. 
things just come completely out of left field, you know, that, that we, we didn't think about. And that's great for us because we're learning as well. We've done four books this year. We've had two out in the last month or so, which we're really excited about, which are going really well. And then next year we hope to do another four quite substantial book and then you've obviously got the magazine which is a rolling program and in between that we've got little projects that people come to us which are very quick and easy to get out there and very accessible and it's a lot going on. Thank you very much. Monaco's Isabella Jew and Jack Hale and Eddie Reed as well. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries feel free to write to me, Fernando at fpandmonaco.com And of course, you can always listen to the show again at monaco.com or on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. The Tornadoes, Busting Surfboards. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.